0: Uh, it really is a joy to be back here with you all. Thanks for the invitation. I get to have uh, two weeks here in First Peter, which is, which is awesome. I was telling Chris Weigel the last time I tried to preach through First Peter, I spent about six weeks on the first 10 or 15 verses and still didn't even get done chapter 1. Um, but fortunately, they only gave me two weeks to work on the first 20 verses this time. So we um, think we'll go at a little faster pace. But it's up to me, I guess, to start us off. And as I was thinking about this book, I know Tom gave a little introduction, um, I imagine he mentioned 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, where we get uh, Peter's answer to the question of why he's writing this letter. And in that verse, he talks about how I'm writing these people, he says, I'm writing you to encourage you that the gospel you have, or that, the, that, that basically the message of grace that you have is true. Your understanding of the gospel is true, therefore stand firm. I'm encouraging you that the message of the gospel you have is true, therefore stand firm. And I was thinking about this because, you know, the way the letter starts off, what we're going to look at tonight is, is Peter writes to, these, to, to this group of people that are scattered in Asia Minor, kind of Turkey, that area around there, and he says to them, basically, you're kind of weird, You are elect exiles scattered throughout this area. And I don't know what you think about yourself. Now, I know, you know, Austin has copyrighted the Keep Austin Weird logo. I really do think, didn't I see a bumper sticker Saying keep East Nashville weird, or was it keep three seven two zero six weird? I know I've seen that. I couldn't find it on the web anywhere. So maybe it's still up for being copyrighted. If anybody wants to do that, Um, that domain is still available. You can buy it. But there's a sense in which, you know, for for a lot of us, particularly in, in in sort of a consumeristic culture, one of the ways that we try to even kind of find salvation in a sense is to not fit into the mold, to be weird in a sense. But Peter is saying, if you are in Christ, in a sense you are weird, but you're not weird for weird's sake. You're weird for the sake of the kingdom of God and your neighbors. At one level, you don't fit in, but that's what you're called to be about. You're not only called to not fit in, but you're called to live in a place where you don't fit in. And Peter's going to talk to them about what do you need to know to actually embrace that and live in that sort of way. When he calls these Christians God's elect exiles scattered, why is this identity so important for them to understand? And what do we need to understand even tonight to live this way as elect exiles scattered. What does it mean to to be that? And how do we live that way, even against the grain of the world we live in? One of the quotes that I I gave Tom to put in the bulletin was Eugene Peterson, who translated this, this version of the Bible called The Message, which is actually really, really helpful, I think, sometimes if you've read the Bible for a long time and you feel like you understand it pretty well. Sometimes it's nice to get a fresh version of some verses that might be very familiar to you. And if you've never read the Bible, um, the, the message is actually really helpful for getting some of the startling emotion in language that preserves that uh, startlement, if I could invent a word. Here's what he says about Romans chapter 12, don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit in without thinking, don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit in without without thinking. That's our challenge. So what does God say to help us? Look with me, if you will, at First Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 1. And it is, is it printed in your thing? Yeah, good. So you can follow there if you don't have a Bible tonight. Peter, or we could say from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in His great mercy. He has given us new birth into a living hope in all kinds of trials. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you don't just bring salvation to your people, but you graciously tell us what we were saved for, what we're to live like, who we are, and how we're to be. And we pray, Lord, that tonight these would not just be words, but that you would send your spirit to testify to the truth of your word, that our spirit could resonate with your spirit, even speaking through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have this friend, John. I've known him for many, many years, and I ran into him the other day at, uh, at the movies And I don't even remember how we got talking about this, but he told me this amazing story that in some ways I've been looking for a sermon to fit this story around. (laughs) Maybe you don't know that preachers do that sometimes. But this is such a great story for what it means to live as a weirdo. So John... Years ago, I was working at a church up in Chicago, actually out in Wheaton, uh, a church called the Warehouse Church. Maybe some of you have been there. It's still there. Um, he also had run a Christian kind of indie record store, kind of like if Grimey's was a Christian record store. And uh, year, I've known him for years and years since uh, Aaron threatened to put a picture of me back when I had a perm mullet <laughs> up on the screen. And I've known John that long. Um, I stayed at his house back then when I played in this, in this rock and roll band. Anyway. Anyway. Um, well, he tells me about this time when he was up at his church and he was working as a youth pastor then. And the head pastor said, John, you really have a gift for reconciliation and peacemaking and I've got a situation tomorrow. I really need you to be at this meeting. Can you be at this meeting? And he was like, well, yeah, you know, I, I, I think I can. Um, and the, the pastor's like, well, promise me you'll be there because if you can't be there, I'm literally going to probably postpone this meeting. I need you to be there. And he said, okay. The next day, the day of the meeting comes, and he gets a phone call from his friend Dan. And Dan says, John, you've got to come with us tonight to the movies. And John's like, oh, man, I would, but i got this church thing. And he goes, no, no, John, you don't understand. When I say us, I mean Bono. (laughs) Like, what I mean is, I'm here in town with Bono. We're going to go out to the movies. We're going to send a limo to pick you up. To take you to the movies, to take you to dinner, to take you out afterwards, and then the limo is going to bring you home. Oh, did I mention Bono? <laughs> and he says, I can't. I've got a church thing. I've got a church thing. He goes, All right. So Dan calls up another friend of theirs, Austin. And Austin, he doesn't have a church thing. So he goes. And a couple days later, my friend John is talking to Austin. He's like, man, I can't believe I had to miss that. Um, I, I don't know if I'll ever get to meet Bono. And Austin goes, you know, you know, dude, are you kidding me? I sat next to Bono at dinner. I sat next to Bono at the movies and drinks afterwards, and he doesn't know me from dirt. But all I can tell you is every 15 minutes, he kept asking me, who is this guy, John? that blew me off for a church meeting. I have got to meet that guy. (laughs) Now, listen, I can't promise you that Bono is going to want to meet you. But guys, who knows? Who knows what God can do with a little colony of the kingdom here in East Nashville who believes That what God has done for them and what God has called them to be changes the way they live and makes them live in a way that other people would look at and say, that's kind of crazy. That's kind of insane. To everybody watching, it it, it looks weird to be an elect exile scattered in a place where you sense you don't fully belong. But that's what Peter says to us, is our identity. And let's look at what he says we need to know and embrace to live that identity. You see, identity determines action and helps you stand firm in your commitments. Let me say that again. Identity, who you think you are, always determines how you live. And Peter wants to be very sure that we understand several things so that we can stand firm. Let's look at them. The first thing he says we need to know is who we are. We need to understand our identity. We are the elect exiles, the scattered ones, which is to say we're dearly loved as the people of God and yet not fully at home. Now, some translations here in verse 1 say chosen. Some say elect. It doesn't matter. Many people get hung up on this idea, don't they? I want to at least point out this. I'm not going to fully unpack everything the Bible has to say about being elect or being chosen, but I will point out that the Bible isn't embarrassed by that idea. It's just not. And so if you're trying to understand what Christianity is about, you need to not just sort of excise this idea out of the Bible. I will just tell you for a long time, I felt like I can read the Bible, all the stuff in the Bible, but when it comes to those kind of ideas, I'm just going to sort of do an end run around them. And I will tell you that at a certain level, I didn't really understand the grace of God until I wrestled with this. I can't fully explain it tonight, but I can tell you that every scripture, the Bible says, is profitable. And that means every doctrine is profitable. And be careful of what you Excise out of the Bible before you even try to wrestle with it. God says here that His people, key to understanding who they are, is they are elect, chosen. Now, listen, being chosen in the Bible means that those who had nothing with which to impress God have been picked anyway because of His great mercy. Being chosen, the way the Bible uses that phrase, means that those who had nothing to do and nothing to bring to impress God have been picked anyway according to His great mercy and because of His great mercy. Now, I know it opens a can of worms, and I can't solve all that stuff with you tonight, but if you don't get that, you miss the very first part of the identity here, that God has done something. Actually, the same word is used down in verse 20, which we didn't read tonight. But down in verse 20, it talks about Jesus and how he was chosen before the creation of the world, but has been revealed in these last times for your sake. Chosen in 1 Peter chapter 1 cannot simply be him looking into the future and seeing what you're going to do. I know at some level it would seem easier to us to think that that's what it means, but it doesn't. It's something that God is active in. And this activity of God is key to you understanding who you are and being able to live as the countercultural community of God. God is active, not passive. When the Bible speaks about being chosen, it's trying to help you understand that you're not the one who saved you and that this is vital to your identity. It's vital for you to know. The second thing it says here is that that we're exiles, exiles. Not only are we elect or chosen, but we're not at home here. We're exiles. Now, some in the church have gotten a little confused about this part. If you listen to different speakers, different preachers, even various songs, not only now but in the history of the church, you can see that some people get kind of confused about this. Listen, when the Bible says that this world is not our home, that's not so much a statement about geography as it is a statement about identity. And that's important to understand. This world is a broken place. But God is committed to making all things new, and so this world is not our home yet. The Bible doesn't teach that our home is on a cloud somewhere, and one day we'll finally be set free from all this physical stuff, and we'll just be a disembodied spirit floating forever in a crowd. No, the Bible doesn't say that, and it says here that we're exiles It doesn't mean that our ultimate goal is to get off of this planet one day. It means that this is not our reference point. This is not our identity. This broken world is not what we were made for. So we are elect exiles. We don't fit in 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 a way, in a big way. It means that neither is our home in this broken world taking our cues from its values and trying to find our identity in the acceptance of this world. We are to feel a sense of not fitting in wherever we are before Jesus returns and makes all things new. It doesn't mean that your physicalness is what makes you not fit in. It means that what makes you not fit in is the calling God has put on your life, the relationship that he's given you with him and his commitment to make this place, even here, this earth, a different, healed, and whole place. And you have the seeds of that in you if you are in Christ. And you can never fully feel at home, and yet God says, Live here. Live here. Be here. We're exiled. The next thing he says about these people is they're scattered. So he describes these people, he says to them, You're elect exiles scattered. The word here is actually this word diaspora, and it's a word, this Greek word is a word that refers these people here back to several experiences that God's people had had in the Old Testament. This idea that God's people living in Jerusalem, living in Israel, had been picked up out of their land and had been sent to another place. And it was a huge deal for God's people because they felt like, how can we worship God and love God if we're not in the place where the temple is, the place where we can worship Him in freedom? But this was part of God's plan, teaching us, teaching us, telling a story. Scattered, you see, means that you're going to be here a while, right? Now, it's interesting that He tells these people that you're elect exiles, scattered, because these are not Jewish people he's writing to. See, he's not writing to Jewish people, but yet he takes terms that are used about God's people in the Old Testament and applies it to people who are not Jewish, they're Gentile. And in doing that, one of the things that he's saying here is you need to understand that the story of God's people is your story, that what's been true of God's people is now true of you. Peter is using a word that in the Old Testament has been used about his, his people Israel, and he's saying this is true of you, his church, right now. One of the two important things I'll just mention real briefly here is when you come into the family of God, the history of the people of God becomes your history and your identity, right? Right? In other words, the people of God's history is your family history. Second, understand this, the story of God's people throughout the Bible is a story of suffering. That's a key theme in the story of God's people, and it's your theme here. Scattered means you're going to be here a while. Uh, What God told His people through... Uh, the prophet Jeremiah, is you are to, you're basically to settle down in your state of being scattered, even in your state of being away from home, so to speak. You've been kicked out of Israel, you've been carried off, but you're to marry, you're to settle down, and you're to work for the shalom of the place where God has put you, right? We're not just passing through. Christians that think that have done terrible damage to the witness of of the church in the world. To think this world is not my home, I'm just passing through, is not what Peter says to these people. He says, you're elect. He says, you are the elect exiles scattered. But here you are. This is where you are. That's your identity. Elect exiles scattered. And he says that that's absolutely vital for you to understand. And then he goes on, he says, you also need to know what you've been given. And here he speaks to them about the the assurance, A-S-S, the assurance of our inheritance. I love this. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture here in verse three, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Man, I don't know if you ever have tried to memorize any scripture passages, but those are good ones to memorize. Those are such a nice little compact way of saying so much about who we are and what God has done. Because of course. In the Christian understanding of things, those two are always inextricably linked. Who you are is always a result of what God has done. And that's the emphasis here. It's not, praise be to God that you finally decided to join in God's team. And from one level you could say that, and maybe that's the way you understand your story. But Peter wants to drive them to a deeper understanding, the spiritual reality of what really happened is that in his great mercy, he has given you new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. And he's given you an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Look at that. Because of his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope. In other words, salvation is something that happens to us. It's not something we do for ourselves, or even something God does because of something about us. If you want to understand the heart of Christianity, this is where it starts. Praise God, because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth. We were dead, and he made us alive. That's the heart of the gospel. That's why we call it good news, which is literally what that word gospel means. And then he goes on, he says it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What does that mean? Well, the resurrection, there's two key things to understand about it if you want to understand who you are as a Christian, or you want to understand more about what is this Christian thing that people are talking about. When it says through the resurrection, it means the resurrection proves that Jesus really did pay the price of our salvation, but it also speaks of God's commitment to renew all things. In other words, we have a living hope as Christians because we have a living Savior. We have a living hope because we have a living Savior. Jesus rose from the dead, and when he did that, he showed that he fully paid the price for his family to be gathered with him. Everything that would separate his people from his father was dealt with at the cross, and it was fully dealt with. We know that because he's not still in the grave. He's resurrected. Not only is he resurrected, he resurrects and brings us into a living hope. The resurrection of Jesus speaks of God's commitment to renew all things. We have a living hope because we have a living Savior. And then God, he says, gives us an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Kept in heaven for you where you can't get at it and screw it up. And, and all i got to say is this, to me, is one of the most important things you could ever understand to live the Christian life. Your inheritance, your hope, your future, if you're a Christian, is not based upon what you've done. It's based upon what Jesus earned by living and dying in your place. And it's secure, because what Jesus did... In your place happened 2,000 years ago. You weren't there to screw it up. And it's kept in heaven for you where you can't get at it to screw it up. Do you understand the kind of security that that brings? Your salvation is kept in heaven for you where it will never perish, spoil, or fade, and additionally, where you can't get at it to mess it up. Isn't that amazing? You can't mar the righteousness of Jesus in any way. Because Jesus stands before the throne on your behalf, right? We sing it in that hymn sometimes, before the throne my surety stands, before the throne my surety stands, my name is written on his hands. This is why it's a living hope, because you have a living Savior who stands before God and says, that's my child, and I've lived and died in their place, You understand why I think this is one of the greatest passages of Scripture in all the Bible? Man, if you wanted to memorize something to help you in times of of struggling, this is a good passage. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. You have this inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade because it's kept in heaven where you can't screw it up. And additionally, it says this, that we are shielded through faith, by God's power. Do you understand? Listen, the degree to which you are sure of God's love is the degree to which you live for Him rather than living to impress Him. And that makes all the difference. Let me say that again. The degree to which you are sure of God's love is the degree to which you will live for Him rather than trying to live to impress Him. And that's what the Bible calls real freedom. The only way real freedom comes is to know that you have a living hope because you have a living Savior who died in your place and is risen and even now stands before the Father Pleading for you. That's amazing. We have security because we are shielded by God's power through faith. It's it's important, even to understand here, that we're shielded by God's power. We're not not shielded because of our faith. You understand that? Faith is, is kind of like the hand that receives the gift of God. It's not the thing that makes this whole transaction work. It's not a power in itself. It's an instrument through which God brings blessing to us. We have security because we're shielded by God's power. And not only that, the best is yet to come, he says. He says you're shielded by God's power, not by how well you understand and appropriate God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So the best is yet to come. It's ready to be revealed. In other words, what you know as you read the Bible will one day be publicly declared before everyone. And and Peter says this is vital for you to know that this assurance is something you need. Knowing what you have is key to living in freedom. My wife showed me a, a fascinating um, ad. Maybe you've seen it from this Thai communication company. Uh, the company's called True. But did you see this ad? It's basically a three-minute little commercial about a little Asian boy who tries to steal medicine for a sick mother. Have you guys seen this? You need to go find this after this. He, the little boy tries to steal medicine for sick sick mother, and another shop owner catches him. The shop owner catches him and is scolding him, When another shop owner hears what's going on and basically steps in, pays for the medicine the boy is trying to steal, and gives him some vegetable soup to boot. 30 years later, the shop owner who had given the great gift to this little boy falls ill and is in the hospital, desperately ill. The daughter of the shop owner is there looking at the bill. It's enormous. She can't possibly pay for it. And she falls asleep at the hospital bed. She wakes up in the morning and she sees next to her this piece of paper. And she opens up the piece of paper and it's the bill. She looks at it again and this time she realizes that the balance has now been wiped away completely. Because the doctor who's been treating her is the little boy. 30 years ago, and, and there's a little note inside the bill that says, paid in full 30 years ago with a bottle of medicine and some vegetable soup. Paid in full. It's amazing three minutes of video to watch, and I guarantee you'll be in tears, but let me tell you this. Imagine how that girl would have endured that trial if she knew before her father even got sick that she knew the doctor who could clear her debt. See, it's one thing to find out on the back end, oh, man, I made it into heaven somehow. Who knows how? It's another thing to know that the one who makes that decision has already fully paid your debt, and you can know that, and you should know that now. And Peter says it's absolutely vital We have an inheritance, he says. You have it now. You're not hoping for it. You have it. And it's an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you where you can't even get at it to screw it up. I don't care what you do. I don't care what you doubt, what you struggle with. You can't get at your inheritance to screw it up. Yeah? It's like having the most amazing trust fund that you never actually come of age to be able to spend. But you know it's there. All right. so Any trust babies here? Well, maybe not. You can take well You can take withdrawals, yes. Well, you can look at it, you can read your statement, and you can know, yeah? But it never goes down, right? It never wears out. Everything you need to be beautiful in God's sight has been done, right? And the third thing we need to remember, he says, to stand firm, is that suffering and rejoicing are both in the present tense. And you might think, well, that, that seems to undo these other things. And as you're reading this passage, you're like, man, I just want to end at verse 5. And, and verse 6 starts out, and then it just takes this left turn that you just didn't see coming. In this, in all this, you greatly rejoice. Well, of course, who wouldn't rejoice in having an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade? he says, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Now let me point out something really important to understand what Peter's saying here. Both the suffering and the rejoicing are present tense. It's not like you graduate from one to the other and then you never go back. No, they're both true at the same time. And that is absolutely vital for you to understand if you would understand what this Christian thing is all about. We rejoice in this, he says at the beginning of verse 6. What is the in this? Well, it's all that stuff in verse 3 and verse 4 and verse 5. Let me tell you something amazing. You need doctrine to get through suffering. And, And I know That a lot of you, you know, maybe feel like, well, I don't know about doctrine, you know. You know, that idea just seems like a bad word. But Peter doesn't shy away from it at all. He says, you need to know this. You need to rejoice in this stuff. All this stuff that's true about you, they're not just empty words. It's vital for you to understand this for suffering. Now, it doesn't mean that you go to somebody right after they've lost a child or a husband and you give them a book of theology and say, read this. Right? But it does mean that comfort must deal with truth and reality, and not lies, and not made-up stuff. You need doctrine to get through suffering. And I think Peter would say, do your preparation work now. You know, he writes this letter at the very beginning or right on the verge of the persecution of Nero that's coming, a persecution that church history tells us involved Peter himself being crucified upside down. This is not written to people who are just sort of basking in the lap of luxury. This is written to people who understand that their faith may be a matter of life and death. And you say, well, you know, Jesus doesn't know what I'm dealing with. Peter doesn't know what I'm dealing with. Let me tell you, he does. And he says, in this you greatly rejoice, and at the same time, you suffer grief in all kinds of trials. We are to rejoice in all this stuff, verses 3, 4, and 5. We are to greatly rejoice in all these things that are true about what has God done for us. Savor the riches of the gospel until it tastes sweet to us but suffering is our present reality too. Uh, I had an opportunity to, to hear a guy speak at Belmont on Friday, a guy who goes by the name of the Vicar of Baghdad. What a fascinating guy. He's, a, he's an Anglican priest who works in Baghdad and has grown this church to 6,000 people. Do you know there was a church of 6,000 people in Baghdad right now? Who would have known? But it's not quite like City Church. He baptized, a few weeks ago, 13 people. Which is pretty amazing. By the end of the week, 11 of them had been killed. By their families. For embracing Christianity. That's a church growth technique? It is in Baghdad. That's the kind of thing Peter fully expected. Like, he's not just talking about kind of nice little ideas to tickle your intellect. These people are about to suffer. Peter himself is about to be crucified. And his last request is that he be crucified upside down so that he wouldn't be seen in any way to have the same honor that Jesus himself had. That's pretty intense, right? But that church has grown to 6,000 people. And that's their regular experience. What is your expectation of what it means to follow Jesus? Do you think that grieving is inappropriate for Christians who know Jesus and know the doctrines of verse 3, 4, and 5? Let me just remind you, Job chapter 1, verse 20 through 22. He rips his clothes. He shaves his head. He falls down screaming. Yet the Bible says in all this he did not sin. I had a friend this week going really through hell who texted me at one point that they had never felt so close to Jesus. Can you make sense of that? This person said that before they had known that God was kind, this person said, never had I really known it until now. And if I told you what you were going through, you would think I'm just up here making crazy stories. But I can tell you that's not the only time I've had that experience as a pastor. Sometimes you go to comfort people in the midst of suffering and God has buoyed them in a way that you cannot explain other than the power of the Spirit to convince them that this is true. I've seen God's people at times in the midst of suffering tasting the sweetness of God so love, so powerfully that I wonder if perhaps they're losing their mind. And I and I don't, honestly, I don't like put that out of the realm of possibility because I've seen that happen too. But there is something about what Peter's describing here that rings so true to my experience as a pastor. Stand firm you know, believing this stuff will make you weird. It will. Not just to those who don't know Christ, but honestly, and this is even more difficult sometimes, to those who are Christians and, 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 and just can't make sense of greatly rejoicing at the same time suffering. But what should elect exiles scattered expect life to taste like, to feel like, We're going to come in a few minutes to this table where we're going to eat food, Christian food, to remember who we are and what our hope is. Because we need to be reminded and we need to taste that Jesus himself knew what it meant to suffer, but also to triumph. And he comes and he meets us in this meal He doesn't just say, try your best to remember these words. He says, come, take, and eat, and be nurtured in the bizarreness of this idea. You know, they say East Nashville is weird, but I I, I wish they would say that city church is even weirder. (laughs) If you're trying to be the unweird ones in this weird city, you've missed the point of Christianity. We're to be the ones that, that people can make no sense of. Because at one level, how does this stuff make sense? Only because we've been birthed into a living hope. A living hope. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that this is real, that these words are life and truth. Not just ideas for us to consider, but your truth for us to submit to, to feed upon to relish, and we pray that you would give us faith to believe what you say and to know it and live upon it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.